The Things We All Carry is a podcast about first responders and their stories surrounding trauma on the job. The intention of this podcast is to raise awareness and share meaningful conversation around a subject often viewed as taboo or simply ignored. Be aware this content may be graphic and it is real. It may not be suitable for children or adults triggered by this subject matter. Welcome back to The Things We All Carry. This week I'm re-releasing an episode. It was... Initially, episode 37, and it's Tyler. Tyler's from Wisconsin. He is a, a firefighter for 18 years, and 12 of those, he's been an EMS, and he's currently a paramedic and a captain in his department. Tyler has one of those stories where the personal is intertwined with the professional. Uh, he was married, he was divorced, and then tragedy struck. And he shares his story of not only that tragedy, but what he did to overcome the tragedy and how he's moved forward and where he is today. And like I said in my initial write-up or intro for the show, it focuses on his life, that fearful day, and his recovery and his message to anyone fighting their own demons. And we're all fighting our own demons. That's a day-to-day thing. Some of them, uh, some demons are larger than others. But they're there, and we're all kind of fighting and surviving and, in some cases, thriving. And so this is an episode that, that uh, I don't know, to me, it just deserves to be heard again. And if you haven't heard it, then it's new for you, and that's perfect. If you have heard it, just take a listen to it again. Uh, see if you pick out something new from it. See if there's something that stands out to you that you kind of want to clarify. And if there is, reach out to me. Let me know what's going on. You know, send me your questions, send me your comments. Um, like I said last week, I'm going to take a couple of weeks off of new episodes just so I can take a break. I can regroup a little bit, maybe retool some. Uh, I just had the pleasure of recording a, about an hour and a half episode with TJ from Keep the Promise, and that'll be on his show. Um, but it was one of those conversations. We didn't, we went into it with uh, no plan no framework for what we were going to talk about. And it just led into a conversation and conversations are what this show and shows like TJ's and that's what they're all about. It's just two people having a conversation, sharing some, in some cases, sharing some intimate knowledge, uh, sharing details of your life that, that a lot of people tell you not to share, but I think that's bullshit. I think that, um, you share what you're comfortable sharing. And if somebody finds it's too much or, or, or too aggressive, then I think that's more on them than it's on you. Uh, there are times I share some stuff and I wonder myself, well, why the fuck did I just say that? But it's necessary because obviously I found it necessary to share. And I found that this microphone has led to some sort of catharsis for me, some sort of a, of a chance to, to get out those demons that, that we talk about and that Tyler talked about. Um, you know, just get them out because if you talk about your demons, they don't disappear, but they become a little more manageable, I believe. So I hope everyone is enjoying the lead up to the holiday season. It's a weird one for me. I, um, I'm not a big holiday guy. I'm not a big Christmas guy. I don't like buying a ton of gifts. I don't like the hoopla that surrounds it. I am not religious. I am what you you would term me an atheist, so I, I don't believe in the tenets of, of Christmas, but 
I do believe in the, the goodwill and what it can bring about for humanity. And I think that's missing from the holiday season. And I wish we could get back to some of that, even in a, in a non-secular version of it. Um, I'm not trying to assault Christmas. Don't, don't try and cancel me. I'm not saying that. I think there's a place for it. And if, if you celebrate Christmas and you're a Christian, then more power to you. I support that, but I also support the, I also support my view. Um, I do believe it's over-commercialized and obnoxious, and I try to stay as much away from it as possible. And, you know, add into that the turmoil of the last few months for me. Uh, just not in the mood to celebrate too much. I'm not in the mood for Christmas. Uh, I'm kind of in the mood to, to get to the new year and move forward. That's where I'm at. And uh, it'll be here soon enough. And before I know it, I'll have new shows that I'm releasing and uh, some, some new wrinkles to the, to the show in its entirety. So, like I said, I hope everyone's enjoying the lead up to the holidays. I hope that life is, is treating you well. And uh, just get out there. Do something for yourself. Do something for somebody else. And uh, enjoy life. Welcome to episode 37 of The Things We All Carry. Today I'm joined by Tyler. Tyler has been a firefighter for 18 years in Wisconsin, 12 of those years in EMS. He is currently a paramedic and serves as a captain in his department. Tyler's life has taken twists and turns leading up to where he is now. He reached out to me and shared his story and the article he wrote for Firehouse Magazine. His professional and private life became inexorably linked one day in 2013. This episode focuses on his life, that fateful day, his recovery, and his message to anyone fighting their own demons. A quick reminder to please help us build a community which not only recognizes, but supports each other through the struggles and recovery. Reach out through Instagram at the things we all carry or email mystoryatthethingsweallcarry.com to offer support and share your story. Please remember to leave a review on iTunes and give a shout out to any first responder you know, love, or care about. Y'all enjoy the show. Tyler Greenwood, how you doing? Excellent, sir. And yourself? I'm doing well. Thanks for joining me. Very glad to uh, finally make this connect and, and get on the show. I think we got a, a great mission and there's a lot we can accomplish. Yeah. You reached out to me and you sent the article at a firehouse magazine and I read it and I was blown away by it. And then it was a, it was a no brainer to me that we had to get you on the show. So I appreciate you being here. Yeah. Sometimes I even read that article and I'm like, trying to figure out whose life I'm reading about because there's so much in it that it's it's hard to fathom that it's it's actually me. So before we get to the article, which we're going to spend the bulk of our time on, let's just talk about you. Where are you right now? So I am in Wisconsin, a little city, about 12,000 people called Baraboo. work as a firefighter here as well as a paramedic. Um, we've got a really cool response area. We've got Devil's Lake State Park, brings in a million plus people a year, a hub for rock climbing. So we get a lot of technical rescue calls out there, pretty cool school skills that we get to use. And then we have just your typical fire EMS response stuff. We've got a handful of like nursing home facilities and we also run inner facility. We've got all kinds of different call volume up in this neck of the woods. So how long have you been doing it? I've been with the fire department for just over 18 years. I've been a medic for 
Caribou for about twelve years. What was um what was family life before you joined the the, the fire department? Where'd you grow up and, and what's your mom, dad, any siblings? Born and raised in Baraboo. One of those people that never really left home, but I love my I love the city. Uh, a lot of friends here, a lot of my family is here. Some of them are dispersed out through Texas, Montana. But as far as family life, really young, my my parents were divorced. I think it's the the cookie cutter start to trauma stories, isn't it? But they were divorced at, I think I was one. My father was a great guy. He passed away a couple of years ago, but he, his demon was alcohol. My mom has told me the, their first date, he uh, went out, they, he drank a bottle of Jack Daniels, passed out, woke up, gave her a ride home, but he was a good, can't, can't complain about that. There's nothing there that uh, was probably extremely detrimental to my my childhood. Mom got remarried to a gentleman named Randy, wonderful stepdad. He's a father to me, very critical part of my development as a youth and to an adult who I am today. But as far as growing up, I never had a direction or group. I wasn't the jock. I wasn't the valedictorian. I was just the middle of the pack. Didn't, didn't really have a group. So when you don't have a group, you gravitate towards the other people that don't, and that tends to be the party crowd. And uh, that was probably the beginning of where things started going astray for for my life. Oh, you, you, you say you, you weren't part of a, a particular group until you just fall in where you fall in at that point, correct? Yeah, I think uh, I think there's a group of sort of misfits that's always out there, if, if you will. If you're not, you know, on the high school football team and basketball team, and you're not getting those good grades, you you there's this group of unknowns, and and that's where I think people start to hang out. And fortunately or unfortunately, I guess that's that's where I ended up. And so, in in high school, you say that you floated a bit. Um, I know you mentioned an ADHD, correct? Yeah, I was, I was always the class clown. I think that was the best way to break the, the tension in the room and to get people to, to, yeah, or to gravitate towards you. I was always the one that was quick to crack jokes. And, and in fact, they put me on, uh, I never got good grades. I was, if I got D's, my parents were happy and uh, they put me on, I got on Ritalin for a little while. I spent about one quarter in school on it and I got straight A's, but I hated the way it made me feel. So I just quit taking it. Um, I guess I was willing to sacrifice the the comedy and having fun more than I was passing classes. But yeah, I started, uh, I really started to party a lot. Probably about my freshman, sophomore year. I had failed all of my freshman year, most of my sophomore year. And there was no way possible I was going to acquire enough credits to graduate. And so from that point on, I was all in with the party game. I uh, wasn't didn't get a driver's license because I already racked up a couple underage drinking tickets. So I wasn't going to be able to get a license until I was 18. And it was just, I, I had to commit to something. So I committed to the party crowd, to having fun. I still went to school. Parents were pretty strict when it came to getting there. So I was always on time and... I didn't skip classes or anything. I just didn't, I gave nothing when I was, all my effort was putting into, put into having fun. It takes a certain kind of commitment though, to, to party like that and still make it to school on time every day. Yeah. It's an and odd it's, commitment. 
It's wild because I look back at it, and if my kids are listening to this, earmuffs, I used to party before school. We'd get a group of people together, and we would party before school, and then we'd meet up at 6 a.m. and then go into school at 8 a.m., and these are all out parties, and I'm like, I just, I look back at it, and I'm, it's hard to think we were actually doing that, but. You're not alone there, because I remember numerous times, you know, partying in the parking lot at school and, and being prepared in a whole different way to go into school. That was if I was going to school that day, because I was as bad a student as you were, and I didn't have the attendance. So uh, I know where you're coming from with some of this. That's well, Yes, I, it became very clear that graduation was not on the timeline as the rest of my classmates. And I turned 18 and everybody else in my class graduated and there was not a chance in the world that my mom was going to allow me to just drop out of school i had to tuck my tail go back into school and register for another half semester which is one of the most embarrassing things i've ever had to do all of your classmates are gone i still look at it as I didn't graduate with the class of 2001 my class and i also really didn't graduate with the class of 2002 because they weren't my classmates I grew up with. So I'm in this like middle ground of not really having, I've never gone to a class reunion because both classes would be extremely awkward for me to go to. And it's what I've moved on from it, but it's just like one of those things that most people don't have to think about or a bridge they don't really cross. And it, it is what it is at this point in my life, but an odd thing. And you're just left behind then. But at, at 18, I had moved out. So I was going to high school, lived in an apartment with a couple of my buddies who were my age or older. And so that was a, a big party house. And unfortunately, got myself into a little bit of trouble. I was at a house that was known for a pretty, it was a pretty big party house. And we had been there the night before and I fell asleep on the couch. And in the morning, there was a knock on the door that everyone will immediately recognize that law enforcement knock. Hmm. And uh, yeah, there's some authority behind it. Yeah, they definitely had a mission when they the first one was a knock. The second one was a uh, ram and they came through the door and I was on the couch right there and had a couple bags of weed on me. And so they they hooked me for possession with intent to deliver. And, uh, and it was dumb because there was no intent to deliver on that. But when I had bought it, the guy just had he had a, two or three small bags and he gave me those, but because they were divvied up, that's how it was looked at and understandable. Um, and then it was a handful of months later, uh, I was in a car with my buddy. He had a baseball scholarship and we got pulled over and he had some weed on him. And of course, being the good friend, I thought, well, I don't have anything going on in my life, so give it to me. So I held on to it, pulled us out of the car, searched us, got popped with that. So now I have a second offense. My first hasn't even been completely run through the court system yet. I was definitely on on a good path at that point to screw up the rest of my life. And so finally, when all the court stuff had gone through, fortunately, they dropped the intent to deliver because I believe that would have been a felony. So I just got the possession and then I got the possession second. And coming from that was... I think it was 30 days of jail time, which they agreed to let me do Huber privileges, which I don't know if you have Huber privileges, but privileges with down by you, but basically work release program. Okay. And so just, do, you, do you actually do jail time or, or no? Yeah. So okay. you go, you, 
I had gotten hired at our uh, local big box store and it was just, it was a good way to, you have to have a job to be able to obviously get out for that. So it was a good way for me. It was close to the jail. And so I would go there and work eight to four. And after four o'clock, I would go back and spend the night at jail and then, you know, repeat the next day. So your bed was in, in a jail cell for the 30 oh, correct. days. Okay. Yeah. But just prior to going into jail, I met a girl, Jessica, and we immediately clicked. Actually, a buddy of mine was dating her and he was trying to get away from her. So he said, hey, I want you to meet this girl. I I'm trying to hang out with this other girl. You keep her busy. And I met her and it was immediate. And uh, she had come from a pretty low income family. She had a young son who was maybe a year old. She lived in a little trailer park with her mom and her brother really didn't have much she had she didn't graduate high school she didn't have a driver's license but none of that mattered she was an amazing person we immediately hit it off and so while i was in uh i was in jail and i was on this work program she would come in and visit me and we knew as soon as i got done with my 30 days that the rest of the world was ours we had a great connection and we were excited to see where that was going to go. Also, while I was in there, I was in this work program. There was a former classmate of mine that worked at the same store. And he was on the local fire department. And I'd always talk to him about it. Because as I was growing up, I had a neighbor that was on the fire department. And this guy became my hero. I'd watch him. Every time the fire whistle would go off, I'd watch Tom fly down the alley, go into the fire station. It was only a couple blocks away from our house. And uh, when there was, we do the open house down at the fire station and I go down there and fireman Tom, neighbor Tom would always bring me up in the ladder truck and walk me around the station and you know, treated me as if I was his son. And uh, it was something that I always desired to do, but because of my, my criminal history, it wasn't on my radar as something that was even possible. The more I got talking to, to Chris, the more he told me it's not... I also thought he had to go get a bachelor's degree or something to become a firefighter. And he started explaining to me that it's the process is not that difficult and it's paid for by the state of Wisconsin. And I thought, well, this might be a reality. I might be able to make something work here, but I still obviously have this huge hurdle to cross as far as my criminal history. I went and filled out the application and it was, I, I did the physical test. I finished first in the physical test of a group of maybe eight to 10 people. And a couple of weeks later, I got the letter telling me that what I expected is that because of my criminal history, I was no, I was not a candidate at this. And from that point, I knew that I had to get on that department. It was, I, I had met Jess, we had an apartment, but we were going to, a family was going to be in our future here. And uh, this was just the one thing that was missing that I, I really felt was going to save me and really define me who I am for the rest of my life. Every month I would call the fire chief and uh, check in with Chief Steve, tell him how I was doing, what I was doing, steps that I was making to make my life better. And uh, the next year they had tryouts again, did the physical test, finished first. And uh, when it came time for the officer group, of the department to meet and discuss candidates, that same neighbor stood up and said, and he was an assistant chief, he stood up and he said, we got to give this guy a chance. I know that if you look at his record, it seems like he's a, 
huge risk, but we've all made mistakes in our past. Give the guy a chance. If he messes it up, then it's on him. There's we have a one year probationary period. If we made a mistake when we and he sh- lets us down or screws up, that's on him. We at least did our part and gave him a chance. And uh, I'm so thankful he did that, and that a couple other people in the room probably you know agreed with it and. I was invited to be a member of the department. I, I I did my entry level, my fire one, my fire two. Every class that I could take, I was taking. I had the the t-shirts, the we have the placard that goes on your front license plate. I had I'd walk around with my pager open. Yeah. Everybody was going to know that I was a firefighter. That's that little honeymoon period. Oh my gosh. I don't care if I remember one time I was fishing away from we were like I don't know, 20, 25 minutes away from the house. And we got paged for a fire alarm or something. And I like, I'm whipping fishing poles into the car and throwing the family. I'm like, we've got to go. Like the world's burning down, but you're just so excited that every call is the big call. But what year was it that you joined the department? I must've joined about, it was 2004. Okay. Yeah, just trying to get a time, trying to get a timeline there. That's why I asked. Yeah, ironically enough, and we'll get to this later on. It was September second, two thousand and four, that I joined the department. That date will become significant again later on. So you're in hook, line, and sinker. No pun intended. After the fishing story, yeah. And and how does it go? How do those early years go? Uh, The early years were amazing. I I found my spot in the department. I've always been a go getter. And the rest of the department recognized that. If there was a call, I was, I lived close to the station. So I was always like the first one there. And we had a rule at the time that if you're a probationary firefighter, you can't ride first engine out. So I'd get there and I would stand. I strategically placed myself at the rear of the apparatus, just behind either the driver's door or the officer's door so that I could make eye contact with them. And so they'd have to see me. Because every once in a while, they'd invite you on the engine if you were if they were still waiting for personnel to arrive. And so I would strategically stand there waiting for them to see me. And everybody calls me Greeny. And they all right, Greeny, jump on. And uh, if you start to pull your weight and show that you're pretty competent, you get more of those invites. And, uh, and I was getting them. I was really finding my groove. And I was ambitious. I had finally, I think the... The group that I was looking for my entire youth, I had finally found as an adult. And it was this new group of 40 friends, brothers, leader, all of my old group of friends. Every time I'd run into them, you know, tell us a fire story or what are you doing now? And even people that wouldn't really talk to me in high school because I was you know, probably viewed as less than now looked at me in the community and were coming up to me and we're super proud of you. And you're going, you're responding to calls where maybe they had a minor traffic crash or a fire alarm at their house. And all of a sudden you're showing up in turnout gear and you've elevated yourself to this person that is is viewed differently. Almost as I hate to say the word hero, but that's, that's how People view the fire and EMS law enforcement world and stuff. You're, especially, I think, fire, you're viewed as this special type of individual. And that felt really good. I had finally, it felt pretty good about myself. I was going to say, that's, it's intoxicating. Yeah. It's, I, I, 
think that you don't know, you, you don't know what you don't know. And uh, I knew I always wasn't extremely proud of myself. And I finally was. I had crossed into a whole new era of my life. And I was, for once, extremely proud of myself. Yeah, again, that's another kind of intoxicating experience when you haven't been able to be proud of yourself and then you can fully, you can sit back and take stock and say that you're proud of yourself. That's immense. Yeah. And so from there I did, I had got a bunch of fire certs and put in a few years on the department. And one day we were called for a motor vehicle crash. It was a head-on and we got there and it was a young lady from the community that was critically injured and we extricated her from the vehicle and our local EMS is, was a, is a full-time service where our fire is, it's mixed. We have a couple career, but most of it's paid per call. And we got this young lady out of the vehicle and she was still alive, but later on, a couple hours later was to come to her injuries. Um, but at that time we got her out, handed her off to the medics and I'll never forget so clearly this image of, I looked around and there was 25 firefighters standing there watching these two paramedics work. Mm. And I felt so helpless. All I wanted to do was help. And I had no training other than holding an IV bag. I had no training on what to do. And I did not want to feel like that again. I went back to the station. I started looking at EMT classes. And I wasn't even sure that I would get an EMT license because, again, the criminal history of in the state of Wisconsin, marijuana is looked at as a Schedule One, And uh, I thought, I'm sure I'm not going to be able to get a medical license through the state, but at least I'll have the training. So I signed up for the EMT class. And at this time, when I signed up for that, Baraboo had agreed that if I get my EMT license and... If I do the training and I can get the license, they would hire me on full time with the caveat that I go to paramedic school, which was everything to me. To, to become a paramedic was a dream come true. I went and did the EMT class and got done with that, submitted my application. And to my surprise, it came back and said, here's your life. I had to explain my criminal history. And at that point, it was six, seven years prior and i had no other police contacts or anything i'd i've been doing a good job fortunately they also I, there's a lot of times in life where i think people take a chance on you and you need to have that whether it's this criminal history stuff or a promotion or whatever it may be you have to have those little breaks where people take a chance and fortunately i had a few of those along the way i got my emt license and was hired full-time by Baraboo EMS and started paramedic school in the fall of 2012. And around this time, so we now had two children, Julia and Jacob, and then my stepson, Dylan. We had bought a house. Things were going very well in my life. Yeah, you explained it in the article as the American dream, correct? It was. We, I... It's beyond my imagination how well things were going in my life. I, I walked around like the proudest man in the world. I, I had this new job. I had these you know, wonderful children. I had a wife. Things were going better than I ever could have expected them to go. There was times in my life when I was young where I 
honestly didn't know that I would see 30 years old. I didn't plan on it, didn't expect to. Uh, the, the trajectory of where things were going, it was not something that was on my radar. I got caught with weed. There's a lot of other things I didn't get caught with. And my outlook was not real well. It was either going to probably, in my eyes, it was going to be death or prison. So to go from that to where I was, I, I couldn't be happier. So around this time, Jessica had been working at a local bar and grill. And it was that spot in town where all of the attorneys go. It wasn't your, your typical bar. It was a very high clientele that would come in there. So she got to know a ton of people in the community. Of course, everybody from the fire department and their spouses knew her. She had the same sort of attitude in life that I had, where if you walked into a room, people gravitate towards you. And she was extremely attractive, wonderful girl. And she was hitting her stride. She had just gotten promoted to the manager and was putting in a ton of hours. And as I felt my life grow and I'm achieving all of these dreams, I think she was feeling the exact same way. She finally had something that she could sink her teeth into and be really proud of. And I understand that feeling. But unfortunately, she was also along the way developing a bit of a alcohol problem. And it went from a bit of a problem to a very, very extreme problem. I, I'm not sure if there was something she was running from or trying to dull, but it was the, it was bottles of vodka every day where it was very clearly becoming an issue. At one point I even went to her coworkers and I was like, we've, you guys, this is concerning and everybody was seeing it, but nobody really wants to end the party, especially when the party's fun. She was a manager. So how, her coworkers really do. I don't think they thought that they had a, any ground to stand on to say anything. And uh, when I did that, she caught wind of it. And I think she thought that I was trying to put a, an end to her growth. And she had done the same thing with, she said, you're getting so wrapped up in this fire and EMS stuff. It's consumed you. You, it almost looks like you were viewing them as your first family and we're your second. And she probably wasn't wrong. I, I was all in, I was achieving a lifetime goal and nothing was going to slow that down, including her. And basically there was a, an unsaid ultimatum where I, I was like, this is what I'm doing. And she was like, this is what I'm doing. And I think from that moment, the, the line was drawn and neither of us were going to give in to either's in demands, I guess, if you will. Where do you guys go from there if you're not giving in to demands? So from there, we it was unfortunately the beginning of the end. We went through a few different phases of separation. She moved. I started seeing somebody. She started seeing someone. I filed for divorce. We broke that off and got back together. She pretty much quit drinking. A month or two go by, the drink starts slowly again, and then we're right back to where everything was. There was a ton of insecurities from me with the guy that she was seeing. I, you know, I just, I couldn't let that go, especially when you've been drinking and stuff, it always is going to come up. And we had even scheduled a 
marriage counseling appointment at one time. And we went in and did it. And a real quiet car ride is the car ride when you leave marriage counseling. There's nothing better than talking about all of your feelings, all of the things that you've done to one another. And we left that appointment and I don't think either of us ever were interested in going back to another one. Not that it's not super helpful and it probably works for a lot of people and it probably could have worked for us, but the emotions were so strong at that point that all it did was make it, it just amplified what we were going through. And it was it, probably a month or two later, I had refiled for divorce, moved in with my parents down in the basement, and I, I was still going through paramedic school. I was right in the middle of paramedic school when all this is going on. And I already had the stress of that. And then you add these marital problems in there. And I I could only focus on one thing at that point, and it was completing paramedic and moving along with my career. I knew that's, I felt that's what was best for me, for the children. I carried great insurance. I was, like I said, achieving this dream. And that was the direction I was going. And if she couldn't keep up with that or get on board with it, I was going to leave her behind. And that was, that was wrong. I, I don't know if I could have tried hard. I felt at the time that I had given what I had and it wasn't being reciprocated or it wasn't being understood. And I think as much as it hurt for both of us, we both began to just hate one another and just both went in our separate direction. She started seeing a guy from down by Chicago. I was dating a girl and we basically left it at that, hated each other. So I filed a restraining order because of the, she would send me all these harassing text messages and rightfully so. She was pretty pissed at me and it was the same thing I knew come 6 p.m. when the booze had started flowing. I was in for it. And that's pretty much how it went every night. But and check in on the timeline. What what year was this? So this is 2012. Okay. Right now, we're probably at about June of 2012. All right. I fortunately kept life together enough that I was able to finish paramedic school. I did the one-year program. So in... August, I want to say, of 2000 and I'm sorry. Yeah. So I'm sorry, 2013 it was. So in August of 2013, I finished paramedic school, got my license and was now operating as a paramedic. I was on this cool 24-hour rotating shift, all these new skills that I can use and the marriage and divorce thing, I was... I was past that. It wasn't complete yet, but I wasn't going to let it affect me. It's a beautiful September day, September 2nd, 2013. I invited my brother over for a cookout. So I had the kids there. I think they were six and nine at the time. And uh, my brother comes over. And the day before this, we had a very significant crash. It was a vehicle versus motorcycle. There was a couple friends, these two guys had jumped on the motorcycle. They were going from one bar to another and they were, it was a foggy night. There's still some details that are unknown, but it was, I think right around maybe midnight and another group of friends jumped in a Jeep behind them and they went down this country road. The motorcycle was stopped at a stop sign. The Jeep came up over this hill. 
hit him. I ejected both of the drivers from the motorcycle. And it was my first ever significant trauma as a paramedic. I got my first field RSI, RSA, uh, rapid sequence intubated. We had two helicopters. And so the next day, I was flying pretty high. Unfortunately, one of the patients who I knew, my patient, had passed away. The other one was still alive, critical, extremely critical. But he was down at UW Hospital in Madison. But I felt I had done my job. I had a successful intubation, had, you know, called for flow, did my part to keep him alive. And so the next day, of course, my brother comes over for this cookout and I'm briefing him on this call that I had. And I'm you know, pretty excited about these are the things I got to do. And I've spent a year learning these skills and I finally got to utilize them. And uh, we were just getting ready. I had a beer in my hand, getting ready to open it. And my pager went off and they paged us out to the verbiage. I can still remember the verbiage. They say you needed a highway 33 and man mountain road. Or a single vehicle accident, rollover, female pinned underneath the vehicle. Said to my shit. My brother already knew the drill. He knew I was going to go to it. You could just tell from the page it was going to be a significant call. And uh, again, I was still about, I was about a block from the station where I lived. So I went down to the station. I jumped in the back of our squad. And we were headed out. We were getting updates from dispatch. And I heard our chief get on scene. And gives give they were the dispatch information that was coming back was she's got a thready pulse underneath the vehicle. And I had been in I was an EMT for a year or two, about a year before while I was doing my medic program. So I had been exposed to quite a bit of death and scenes like that. So a lot of times when we would get on scene, if it was a body recovery, my chief would always ask me if I wanted to do it. I think it just helped with limiting the exposure to some of the firefighters that maybe didn't see that on such a regular basis. We arrived on scene, got our staging instructions. We knew the vehicle was on top of the female and that it was of the utmost importance to probably to get her out of there. The back of the squad opened up. I stepped off. And when I stepped off, my chief was standing there and I was fully expecting the conversation of, hey, body recovery, you want to go do it. And instead, he, he grabbed me by my arm and started walking me down the road. And it's a main highway. And uh, he said to me, he said, it's Jessica. And I remember I said, and just waiting for him. He didn't say anything. And we just both just stared. And he did this, this sweeping motion with his fingers across his neck, as we all recognize as, uh-uh. And I remember looking over my shoulder to the left and I saw my vehicle down there. It was our family um, trailblazer. And it had my license plate. I had personalized license plates. And this surreal moment of seeing my family vehicle on its side, knowing that the girl that I had children with, that I had married, is underneath that vehicle and deceased. And I see all of my, my, my brothers, my family my coworkers are standing around this vehicle and they all know her. They've all been to Christmas parties with her. They've all come to our house and been to birthday parties and picnics. And now they have this job, never mind me, they have this job of now getting her out from underneath this vehicle. But I continued walking down the road a little bit. Our one of our command vehicles was already on scene. 
And I went over and I sat on the front bumper and just tried to figure out what exactly was going on at this moment and what was I supposed to do. And a group of people had started to gather around me. And I remember one of my, to this day, one of my best friends, he's a, an assistant chief with our fire department now, critical care medic, a guy I look up to to this day, great friend. He was the medic on scene, one of the medics on scene. And he came up to me and he said, Tyler, she's deceased. And I started with the, the typical paramedic stuff. What's her rhythm? What are her injuries? And he said to me, he said, Tyler, she's contorted. And I knew from that moment, I don't know if he would have used any other word if it would have hit me the way that word did, but I knew he's a great paramedic. He knows what he's doing. And based on her injuries, he knows that she's deceased. And I said, okay, I, at that time I accepted it as much as you can. And one of another core, he was on the fire department, but he was also a medic. And that day he was acting as a firefighter. He was standing there talking to me. And I immediately, the first thing that came to my mind is I have to go tell the kids. And I said out loud, I said, how am I going to tell the kids? And in medic and in fire training and all this stuff, they, they always tell you, you have to use the words dead, deceased, you can't see passed on because people may not interpret things the way that they need to. You need to be very blunt and you need to use the words that they'll recognize that this, this person has died. There's no, we're not working them. It's not anything like that. And he said, you just have to make sure you talk. I said, that's not what I mean. I have to go home and tell my children that their mother is dead. I'm not worried about the verbiage right now. I'm worried about the task. I needed to get out of there. I, I couldn't be sitting alongside of that road anymore. I got in the passenger seat of that command vehicle and a coworker drove me back to the station. And there was radio traffic, of course, from the scene and they're talking about different things. And I couldn't bear to hear them call the coroner. I don't know why, because I already knew she had died, but I did not want to hear that radio traffic because it somehow solidified what was actually happening at that moment. So I turned the radio off. It, it, it sounded like it was so loud to me driving down the road. So I just turned it off and we got back to the fire station and I took my, all my gear off and I, of course, you know, the sheriff's department wants to talk to you. you know, when's the last time you talked to her? What's going on? Blah, blah, blah. So we went upstairs in the firehouse and I met with the chief deputy of the sheriff's department, who also used to be a firefighter. I knew him very well. And my chief was up there and we just had a, a brief interview of basically that day's events leading up to the last time I had talked to her. And if I you know, if she was, if I knew she was drinking or anything like that lasted maybe three minutes. And when I came down to leave, because now I had to go do death notifications with the family. And when I came down to leave, most everybody had returned from the scene and they were standing down in the bay. And I walked down and when I opened that door and they were all standing there, I'll never forget. It was a deafening silence. They all just looked at me. 
And I couldn't say anything to him. I couldn't thank him at that time. I couldn't, nothing could come out of my mouth that was going to explain the severity and the intensity of this moment. And I just put my head down and walked out. And uh, Jessica's mom lived two or three blocks from the station. It was actually right down the street from where my house was, one block away. I went to, I drove over there, but in lovely social media, people had started talking and, hey, I heard there's this crash out there. And so I think somebody actually took a video when they drove by and somebody said, I think that's Jessica's vehicle. So the rumor mill was already starting to buzz a little bit. And uh, I got over to her mom's house and her brother was there. And as I started walking up, of course, it's never good when a vehicle pulls up and three people step out of it that are all fire. And then there's a sheriff's department chief deputy there. And I walked up and her brother walked out. He's walking towards me. He's don't say it. Don't say it. And they were extremely close. And I, I told him, I said, Justin, she died. And he started crying and I gave him a hug. And as I'm hugging him, I'm looking past him, my head's on his shoulder, I'm looking past him, and in front of my house, a block away, I see my two kids out front playing. And my brother, I had called my brother and told him what happened, so my mom and stepdad had come over to the house. So the kids are outside playing, I'm looking at my children outside playing while I'm holding her brother who's sobbing, and I'm thinking, this is what's to come next. I have to walk down the street and tell the children this news. So I completed that notification with the family or with her family. And everybody said, all right, let's get in the car. And we'll go down the road now. And I said, I can't. I can't make this any faster by driving down the road. I said, I'm just going to walk and I'm going to try to figure out how I'm going to do this. And this will me, you know, ironically enough, that same firefighter that I grew up watching and looking at as a hero was with me and he said i'll walk down there with you and as we walked down the road he said something that has always stuck with me and he said tyler you've always been the glue to this department when things get rocky when tensions get high you're right there to crack a joke you soften the environment and you always take care of us and now it's our time to take care of you and I'll never forget that he said that. And we got down the down to the house. And I don't remember if I sent the kids upstairs or if my mom did. But I walked in and my, my mom and stepdad were there, my brother. And I just briefed him real quick on what had happened. And as I'm doing this, I can hear the kids upstairs. As kids do, they're, they're running around and jumping and they're making noise. And they have no idea what's to come here. And we finally got to the point where I was like, I have to go up and do this. I went upstairs. And I said, hey, kid, I need to talk to you. And uh, sat him down on the bed. And I kind of, I said to him, do you know where dad was at? And they said, yeah, you're on a fire call. And they were used to that. Dad always ran out of the house and went to, to fire calls. And I said, do you know what it was? I said, I think it was a car crash. I said, yep. And... I, I just came on and I said, it was mom. And they looked at me and, and I remember my daughter said, is she hurt? 
And I, I right or right or wrong, I, I don't know. Still looking back, I said she died. And the look on their face was, and I remember my son goes, "Are you spoofing, Dad?" And I said, "No." And if you can reflect back on any death notification you've done or any scene you've been on where you're working a code and it gets to the point where you're not doing anything, even if you haven't done the death notification, you cover the body with a blanket or something, those screams that you get from the family or friends or, now imagine those screams being your children. They were just piercing. And we sat and we cried together and we tried to, I think at that moment, just figure out what we, where was life going to go now? This, no matter what Jessica had done to me, she was, a, she was an amazing mom. And she was still their hero, just, just as I was their hero. Mom, they knew that mom had a problem, but she never did them wrong. She always took care of them. They had a great relationship. And now that had completely changed. Mom was no longer here. We we now started to have to look towards the planning phase of a funeral. And we did that. We got the funeral done. We now had to go empty out Jessica's house, the condo where she was living. And we started life as a family of three. Dylan's biological father took him and they moved over towards uh, Madison, which is maybe 45 miles away or so. And he was starting his freshman year in high school and he would be starting it in a different community. The kids now lost a brother as well as their mom. And it was, I've always enjoyed kicking back and having a few beers or some bourbons. And, but definitely my coping mechanism for Jessica's death became alcohol. I didn't like to be alone. I would have panic attacks when I was alone. I was, if, if you think death hurts, try having a death where you have regret behind it. There were so many things that I wanted to tell her that I wanted to make. I wanted to say I'm sorry for, and I didn't have the chance to do that now. I don't know where, I don't think our relationship ever would have reconciled and we would have been together. I'm confident saying that it wouldn't have, but that doesn't mean that we wouldn't have been able to make things right between us or support one another in the future in whatever life may have brought. But I was never going to get that opportunity. And selfishly, I put myself into a really dark hole and I would put the kids to bed and I'd have people come over and I'd party all night and it just became a comfort thing. I, did, I didn't want to go lay in that bed alone. I didn't want to be alone and I needed people around and there was more than enough people that were willing to come hang out with me. And I, I look at it as I started to heal a little bit. And when I started to heal, I didn't want to heal. I didn't want to feel better. I think there's the famous saying, it's okay to not be okay. And I, I look at that and I, I say, but now I look back and I, it's okay to be okay. I started to heal and I was starting to, that wound was starting to scab a little bit. And when I would drink or get into these, fall into these holes of sorrow, I didn't want to start feeling better because as soon as I started feeling better, that means that I was moving on from her death. I was 
I was letting her die. I was letting her memory fade. People were going to forget about her. And I needed to keep her alive. I needed to keep that pain alive. I needed to keep her memory and who she was alive. That was my mission. Because if I didn't do it, who was going to? And that is a really bad place to be in because you can't keep someone alive that's not here. And it was cyclical. I didn't know how to get out of it. And there was nobody out there that was going to tell me that I needed to man up and move on and start healing. And I don't blame them because I was the heartbroken guy that everybody felt terrible for. And at some point, I probably needed someone to tell me, hey, snap out of it. You got to get out of the zone that you're in. It's time for tier two of this healing process. And uh, it took probably five or six years, honestly, to get to the point where I was I was comfortable with moving on and closing that sorrow and death chapter of my life. And uh, there's a real epiphany moment when you realize that it, it is okay. And uh, this whole time, I'm still going on with my, my paramedic and fire career, and I'm adding more trauma from different calls to this. And it was... Uh, that's a lot of stuff to, to, to tuck in. There's, your show is built around all of these people's stories of traumas and different calls. And I certainly wasn't able to avoid those. I still had all of those calls and all these traumatic events going on with my job. But I, I had this lingering cloud behind me that I, was, that I hadn't dealt with yet. And when I was young, I had done some counseling stuff. And uh, for lack of a better word, it was pretty cheesy. Coloring pictures and talking about my feelings and stuff. And it was something I was not into. And I had a bad taste in my mouth. And so I never really followed up with any counseling in this. And I was going to deal with it on my own. And I don't think that I ever did that. To this day, there's probably some, certainly some lingering effects from her death in that day that affect me pretty deeply. I'm fortunate we're about 10 years out from the event and you know nobody ever wants to hear that time heals things, but it does. That some of that pain wears away and you start to be able to reflect internally. And one of the best things that I was ever able to do, I always thought that I'd like to put this story, I'd like to tell my story. And I could never figure out how to go about that and one day I sat down, my buddy would, he wrote, he writes health articles for Firehouse Magazine. And he said, hey, you should think about writing your story down and maybe I can get Firehouse to, to, to put it in there. And I tried to figure out how to tell that story for a couple of weeks. And I sat down one night and just word vomited into my laptop and I wrote this entire story in 20 minutes, this pretty complete rough draft. And I don't know where it came from and how it just poured out of me when I had struggled for so many years to try to figure it out. But when I got it on paper, it was like, there we that's the process. That's how you start dealing with this. And I think if you can help others, you can help yourself along the way. And we've had some deaths in the community where it's been 
people my age that have lost a spouse either from a traumatic event or something like that. And I immediately reach out to them and I say, hey, if you ever want to talk, let me know. I don't have any formal training in this, if you will. I've taken a few classes here and there, but I'm a set of ears and I understand where you're coming from. And I think with that comes a tremendous amount of comfort and selfishly healing as they're going through this process. So you mentioned, excuse me, that it's okay to be okay. Not, not the typical, it's okay to not be okay. And you're giving yourself space to, to admit to healing. What are the other things you, you identified as you identified as learning from your recovery? Yeah, I think the most important thing, and I try to tell people this as much as I can, is let your job be your job. That's what we do to pay the bills. It's how we build a retirement. We get our health insurance. All that stuff is great, but try to leave that there. Your family's the most important thing. If budget cuts came down tomorrow, I might not have a job, but I'll still have my family. And I, it's great to be very proud of what we do. And we should be extremely proud of the things that we do. But leave it at that. Don't let that interfere with your home life, with your family. At times it's going to, we, we see terrible things. We deal with a lot of emotions and it's going to have, it's times where you're grumpy. Maybe you're sad. I've sat and cried my heart out to my now wife, Ashley, who's an amazing human being. I'm, we're so blessed to have her in our life now. And there was a time where I said, I'll never get remarried again. Like when I get to the gates of heaven, even though we were going through a divorce, it wasn't final. And I'm going to see Jessica as my wife. And when I met Ashley, I knew I can, I'll marry this girl. I'm, this is the one. And she is, she's on, she is heaven sent. And there's times where I've sat with her and I'm not a crier. I don't like to, but there was a cleansing moment. And there are some times that I've sat and poured my heart out to her about a bad call that we had. And that's what family is for, is to be there for you in your rough times and for your good times. And I just can't ex explain how important it is to remember that when you start getting wrapped up in this fire EMS law enforcement career, don't let that become more important than your home life. I always, I always pick on the other guys that guys and gals or whatever that have the thin red line wedding ring and stuff. And I'm like, I wear this very nice flashy wedding ring. And that's what it, I'm very proud of my marriage and my wife. And that finger is that my marriage is important. And that's what that wedding ring is for. I am not incorporating my fire department life into that. And there's nothing wrong with that. I understand it's a, it's the style and whatever. My marriage is separate and more important than my career. And so I can't emphasize enough for people to remember that. The same gentleman that told me that I was the, the glue of the department also told me a very important lesson. And he told me, he said, Tyler, we never really clean out our closet completely. We just get a bigger closet. And it was one of those aha moments because those calls stick with us. They change us and they reroute the way we think, the way we behave, our reactions to things. And no matter how hard we try, I don't think we can ever really forget them. We can try to move past them, but they're going to stay with us and they're going to change us. 
I often think back of if I could just control all delete and go back to maybe 16 or 17 year old Tyler, where I hadn't been exposed to all this death and these traumatic events and all these things in my life. What was my mindset back then? How did I think? How did I react? What were my emotions like compared to where they are today? And unfortunately, we can't do that. We can work on trying to stay as grounded as possible with therapy and, of course, minimizing any sort of substance abuse and things like that. But we'll never get that person back that we used to be, that sort of innocence that we used to carry with us. That person's gone. And we just have to move forward and do the best we can to take care of ourselves and uh, to try to the best of our abilities to clean that closet as much as we can instead of just kind of stuffing more skeletons into it. It's almost like uh, reorganizing as well. Yeah, definitely. I One of the other important things that I learned from this was that those skeletons stick with you as well as the trauma. I think when you're exposed to, it doesn't have to be the death of a spouse or anything like that. It can be just this traumatic, it can be a suicide or a pediatric death you go to that creates these pathways in your brain. And the emotions that you experience that day, your brain remembers that, your body remembers that. And when you ex experience those emotions again, and these chemicals are released, your body remembers. The last time that I felt that emotion, it was this. And that day really sucked. And you fall back into that black hole in that really dark place. And it hurts. And I'll the, the more you experience these deaths and traumas and things like that, the more calloused we get to it. And it's almost like a drug that you almost need more to feel. And I, I, you probably just experienced that recently with the, the death of your friend, right? We go, we see these deaths all the time at work and then we go back and we make dinner and we don't really think too much about it. But then all of a sudden you have this death of a close friend or a family member and you're like, shit, I forgot what death is like. I forgot how much this hurts. Well, the death at work is, is impersonal compared to what you expect at a friend or a family level. And I think when we do those, we do these notifications and stuff, we, we put up this barrier and we say, I'm sorry for your loss, recite the script, and then we move on from it. And I think sometimes we forget that it's a death. It's that person is experiencing this traumatic moment that we'll go home and, and just try to forget. And it's a... That's when you start dealing with these things down the road, these, all that stuff starts to come back to you and you need to make sure you deal with them because if you don't, they're just going to stay there. And then I, I tell people counseling is not a bad, I've dabbled here and there talking to somebody and there's a ton of different programs out there now. And it's good. Even if you're not going through something, go in and talk to somebody, get that stuff off your chest. And you'd be surprised that maybe even though you don't think you're going through something, you might be, but they give you 60 minutes of time and you go in there and you think, how am I going to burn 60 minutes talking? I don't have anything to talk about. And before you know it, you're getting, you're wrapping up that session and you're scheduling six more because you just all of a sudden start opening up these, these doors of things that you didn't really think were affecting you. Yeah, as I say, they and, give you 60 minutes of time. But sometimes you walk out after 120 minutes. 
<laughs> yeah, absolutely. And always try to find a healthy hobby. Try to find a group of people maybe that isn't involved in fire and EMS or if you're in law enforcement. I think we get wrapped up into this circle and what seems normal to us might not actually be that normal. Yeah, just tell, just tell a joke at a party and you'll find out that it's not normal. <laughs> yeah, wait till you get those weird looks. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Absolutely. I found triathlon at... And Speaking of not normal, by the way. Yeah, I, I'm an all-in guy. There's that, that ADHD coming back to haunt you. It was, I watched the uh, Ironman World Championship on TV one day and I was like, that seems cool. And then just went in and signed up and went and bought a bike and it gave me time. That was probably my therapy when I was out on that bike and I was riding for six, seven hours. And there was nobody there to talk to. And I just got to sort of reflect on life and work through either calls that I was on or the Jessica stuff. And it was just, there was no pager. There was no cell phone. It was just me and open road. And it, it I have to believe that it had a positive effect on my healing and um, where I am today. And I'm really happy that I found that because again, I don't know exactly where I'd be and how things would have developed for me. So speaking of where you are, what's today? Today's what's, great. What's your normal I, uh, every day? September 24th, about a month ago today, I was married to the absolute love of my life, Ashley. The, the kids are growing up, successful. Julia's 18 now, and she works a full-time job at our local, one of the local nursing homes. Jacob's a sophomore in high school, just getting his driver's license. I'm still a full-time medic at... Caribou EMS and now a captain with our fire department, which went is a wild turn of events when you go from just begging to get onto the department and now you're one of the leaders within it. And I embrace that role. I'm extremely proud of our department. We have a chief that runs a paid per call department as a career department. His standards are extremely high and I wouldn't want it any other way. When people call mutual aid and we show up, they know exactly what they're getting. We train weekly. And yeah, I'm, uh, I'm blessed beyond my, my wildest dreams. I don't know what I did to deserve to be where I'm at today, but I'm thankful every day that I'm here. So let's go ahead and wrap this up with the, the two questions that we talked about when I had the phone conversation with you. And the first one is of course about an everyday carry. What's something that you carry on you every day that you feel naked without? <laughs> my one they're both, they're both job related. The one is a flashlight, not just any flashlight. I carry one that I can clip onto the bill of my hat because we need our hands. And when you get on scene and it's dark, we can't, I'm not sticking that flashlight in my mouth. We need our hands to work. And I learned from a bad call one time where I didn't have light. Fire wasn't on scene yet. It was a motor vehicle crash out in the middle of the country. And I was basically working with feel. And I said, I don't want to, I don't ever want to do that again. So I carry a flashlight with me. Um, I clip it to the bill of my hat and I have, I can see, and I still have full use of my hands. And the other one, an emesis bag. The only thing I hate worse than vomit is vomit all over me or cleaning it up. <laughs> and so I keep one in my pants pocket. And as soon as I hear that first little, uh, I'm like, here you go. Cause when you need one, you can never find one. No. And we all know that noise too. <laughs> yep, exactly. All right. So what about a book? What's a book you want to suggest to the audience? I've got two of those as well. The one, it's titled a little bit towards law enforcement, but it's really, I would say, first responder. 
and it's emotional survival for law enforcement by Dr. Gil Martin. Okay. Law enforcement might be cut from a, a little bit of a different cloth, but I think we all, all that cloth comes from the same store and it gives some really good insight on not letting being a first responder control your life and don't get caught in that wheelhouse of negativity and things like that. It's not a very long book, but it's a great read. And the other one is called The Body Keeps the Score. It's written by an extremely intelligent man, but he writes it at a very understanding basic level. So as you read it, you start to recognize these things. And I had dated a girl, I don't know, seven years ago or something like that. And she was going through school to get her degree in psychology. And she was younger than me and it was never going to work. But I learned a lot from her and that was the important part. We're still friends to this day. and. Uh, she had recommended that book because she knew what I had gone through. And when I read it, I was reading these things that I had gone through that nobody had told me and that I didn't realize were normal parts of trauma and healing and all this, all these other different aspects of, of my life that I had gone through. And I highly recommend it. Anybody that I talk to about different traumas and stuff, that's one of the first things. Get this book, read it, and you'll understand a little bit that what you're going through is normal. I think that's the most important thing. What you're going through is normal. Yeah, it's, uh, they say there's, there's not a book on this and uh, it at least give you a little bit of insight. All right. Those are perfect. I will, I'm going to, uh, I'm going to link those in the show notes. And so everybody has access to them and I'll link the article in the show notes as well. So they can read the firehouse article that you wrote, the one you referenced in the conversation here. And, yeah. uh, and I just appreciate your time. Hey, this is so cool, man. I really appreciate it. It's like I said, this is, it's good to help other people. And at the same time, it's, this is still healing for me. So I really appreciate it. Excellent. Go, go enjoy the rest of your day. Go pick your son up from school and we'll talk again and we'll stay in touch and let me know how things are going. I look forward to that. Thank you, brother. All right, man. Take care. Yep. Yeah, bye. Thanks for listening to another episode of the things we all carry. Head over to the website, thethingsweallcarry.com, for show notes, resources, and to sign up for the newsletter. Until next week, take care of yourselves, and remember to check in on each other.